Hello and welcome to Front Page Radio with your host, international author, broadcaster, and journalist Dan Wooding, the founder of Assist Ministries and the Assist News Service. Dan, who was born in Nigeria of British missionary parents, was raised in England and later worked for some of Great Britain's largest newspapers. He has been a journalist covering the world for some 47 years now with a focus on persecuted Christians and missions. And now, here's Dan Wooding with today's guest. Welcome to today's Front Page Radio, and for those of you who are moviegoers and have seen the film The Iron Lady, you will have seen our next guest, Harvey Thomas, actually appearing uh, in the rubble of the Brighton bombing. Now, uh, Harvey, this is unbelievable that you're a movie star, uh, and yet yet at the time it was a pretty horrendous situation. First of all, tell us, what's this scene that you're in, in this Meryl Streep movie? Well, in the early part of the movie, the whole movie is about flashbacks. And in the early part of the movie, they're using a flashback from the Brighton bombing in 1984. And they're actually using live newsreel pictures, and it happens, as I sat there watching it, there was me being rescued. (laughs) Because I was buried for two and a half hours in there, and when they brought me out, all the news cameras were there. So this is actually in the movie. Uh, On the other hand, I'm not wearing anything except mud, so (laughs) I I do advise caution. (laughs) Well, Harvey was a, a... Well, he's really a miracle man, because he survived the bombing. Take us back, Harvey. First of all, what was your role with Margaret Thatcher? And then lead us into the story of the bombing itself. I was director of press and communications for Margaret Thatcher, which meant dealing with all the media, handling all the communications, political communications on behalf of the party. And uh, so I was actually directing the conference. This was the final big meeting of the conference. And what year was that? That was 1984, and the night before, on the Thursday, uh, Mrs. Thatcher and I had been rehearsing her speech, because we'd spent hours rehearsing it and going over the last wordings of it and everything like this. And about 11 o'clock, she said, uh, Harvey, why don't you try and go and get some sleep? Because I've got to go and see the various parties that are taking place. You know, the young conservatives, the women, everybody had a party on the last night of the conference. So she said, you go and get some... She she knew I wouldn't want to go to them. So she said, I'm going to do the Prime Minister tour, and uh, you go and get some sleep. She said, I may call you again about 2.30 a.m. in the morning to do some more work on the speech. So I said, fine. So I toodled off to bed and uh, went, to, went to sleep. Next thing I knew, it was 5 to 3 in the morning, and the bomb was exploding under, underneath, about 5 feet underneath me in the, oh. in the um, higher cupboard of the room immediately under my bed, wow. which was kind of offset to my room. In other words, it wasn't the bed wasn't in the same place in every room so where my bed was was immediately over this cupboard underneath so I went up through the roof of the hotel because I was in the seventh floor I went up through the roof of the hotel down three floors and my body caught on a steel girder just below the fifth floor and ten tons of rubble fell down on top of me the fireman told me that the fireman also told me that my substantial bulk saved me Um, (laughs) which is my excuse for the occasional ice cream. And, and so I landed here, and then this, all this rubble fell on top of me. And I had no doubt at all for the first, I guess, five or six minutes that I was going to die. I knew I was going to be with the Lord. Mm. And that was fine. I, I found my faith was quite comfortable about going to be with the Lord. But the trouble was, Marlies, my wife, 
um, was nine and a half months pregnant. In other words, that we had a two-week overdue baby who is now a a lovely 27-year-old. And um, she's a wonderful girl, musician, etc. And she was born five days after the bomb. And then our second daughter, Lani, was born uh, two years later. But uh, I was concerned about Marlies and our unborn baby, that that he or she wouldn't have a daddy and that Marlies wouldn't have her husband. Now, she so, wasn't in the hotel with you. No, she was back in London, just waiting for the baby any minute. I mean, wow. it was literally any minute. And my mother, who was then in her late 70s, had come to stay with her while I was with the conference. Wow. And I would kind of expected to get a call, you know, please come up to London quickly, the baby's coming kind of yeah. thing. But um, I was woken up by the bomb instead. Wow. Now, just take us through this, because I can't imagine you're in a deep sleep, and then suddenly this... Was it like in slow motion, or what? Um... Yes, I suppose on reflection it was a little bit as though it was in slow motion because, you know, sometimes you, may, you, you dream briefly that you're flying through the universe kind of thing and for, yeah. just occasionally that dream comes along. But then you realize that when you fly through the universe in your dreams, planets bounce off you <laughs> as distinct to you bouncing off them. <laughs> and, and I became aware very, very quickly that I was ba- ba- sort of bouncing off rubble and everything was hitting me from all angles. Uh, so I put my hands over my nose and mouth, yeah. um, just instinctively, I think, uh, because I felt whatever's happening, I've got to be able to breathe. And that's the one part of me that you've got to have, the nose and the mouth, to breathe. And then I crashed down three floors, and um, all the rubble came down on top of me. I couldn't move an inch. I mean, I had my hands over my nose and mouth, but I couldn't even move my elbows a tiny bit. Uh, I was completely encased in uh, Edwardian rubble from the Ooh. Grand Hotel in Brighton. Wow. So I couldn't move at all. And I knew I was going to die. And then after five or six minutes, I realized I could hear fire bells. Huh. And so I thought, well, all I've got to do is lie here and wait. And sooner or later, someone's going to come and dig me out. Yeah. Actually, it was um, two and a half hours before they got wow. me out. Did, were you yelling or shouting or what? Not until I heard somebody. Yeah. Um, because the funny thing is, when you expect you're going to panic, mm-hmm. you can't panic if you're completely in a confined space because you can't move. You can't panic. Uh, yeah. You want to throw your arms out. You can't do that because you're, you're completely confined in, in, in and sort of buried in, in all this rubble. So I was sort of lying there. And then I heard voices beyond the fire bells. And so I was going to yell out um, for help. And then I thought, I'm an Englishman. Can't I think of something more original than just help, you know? <laughs> and in the meantime, there was water pouring down through and trying to drown me because oh. we'd burst pipes on the way up. Yeah. So I had my upper lip over my lower lip, so oh. I'm talking like that, oh, my wow. upper lip over the lower lip, and my hands trying to keep the water off. So I couldn't really take a deep breath because there was 10 tons of rubble on my chest. Oh, yeah. So I ended up by going, whoop, whoop, you know? <laughs> and I thought, that sounds like it. Well, first of all, I thought, can I say anything else? And I thank the Lord I wasn't a Frenchman yeah. because I would have had to think, what tense do I yell out hence help in? Is it au secours, de la secours or whatever, you know? So anyway, I sort of, well, well. And then I thought, that sounds just like a little dog. And then I thought, oh, that's, that's wonderful because the fireman in England will do anything to rescue a dog. <laughs> uh, and, and we all know that, you know, a dog or a horse, they'll do anything to rescue it. So I go, well, well. And then I heard somebody say, quiet, quiet. There's somebody alive down there. Yeah. And that was when the fireman first heard me. Wow. And from that point, um, that was they told me after about 45 minutes after the bomb. And it was two and a half hours before they actually dug me out. Wow. And uh, the trouble was I was hang- holding out, hanging out over a five-story drop. 
I didn't know that, except that it was cold. Uh, and later that day, the whole lot fell down, all the rubble and everything on top of me after they dug me out. So they had a very difficult time trying to get to me and dig me out from under all this rubble. Yeah. Um, and it was just below the fifth floor. But finally, they, they made it. They were, they were brilliant, the firemen. Wow. And um, find they, they shone a torch in. And, of course, my eyes were completely closed because of wet Edwardian rubble that had kind of yeah. molded into my eyes. And they said, can you see the light? Can you see the light? Yeah. I said, I saw the light years ago, brother, <laughs> but I can't see yours. I've got my eyes closed here. You know? <laughs> and then they asked me which end up I was. I said, I don't know which end up I am. I'm lying here, you know. And uh, they said, well, which end up were you when the bomb went off? So I said, well, I went to sleep with my my feet facing the sea window, which is yeah. which is south. So my head must have been facing north. Yeah. So they said, well, that'll help us. We'll see what we can do. Oh, wow. Anyway, they dug me in, and this was all live on television when they yeah. dug me out, my, my rescue. Wasn't there some, uh, some story that you actually uh, spoke to the cameras as you were coming out? Uh, yes and no. I, I, um, when I came out, I actually said, I thank the Lord. Yeah. And I didn't realize I'd done it aloud until I oh. saw it on a film decades oh. later, two, yeah. 20 years later. Wow. I actually said, thank you, Lord. And I didn't realize I'd said it aloud. Yeah. But then when they got me to hospital, I was the last but about four. I think it was the Tebbets who were really seriously injured. I mean, they yeah. suffered terribly and still are suffering. I mean, they're a marvelous couple. And John Wakeham was still, but I was the last one to be rescued other than those three. Yeah. Um, so they... Uh, took me in this ambulance and they didn't know where the Royal Sussex Hospital was so I had to sit up with this thermal blanket around me and direct them to the hospital <laughs> well they were the ambulances called in you see oh, from, 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 yeah. from somewhere else so we got to the hospital and uh, after a few minutes they, they examined me and they said you have no bones broken so I said oh good I can go back and run my conference because I knew mother would want to Mrs. T would want to keep on doing it <laughs> and um, so they said oh no no you can't do that you're going to have a great big shock yeah so I said, listen, mate, I've just been blown up by a bomb. How much bigger shock can I have, you know? <laughs> so anyway, he said, oh, you'll feel all nauseous, etc." I said, well, forget it. If I do, I'll know what's happening. Yeah. And at that point, the manager of the hospital came in yeah. and said, Harvey, the doctors tell us you haven't broken any bones. Amazing. You're cut and grazed and everything, and a complete mess, but you haven't broken any structural bones. Incredible. So would you mind coming and doing a press conference for us? Because you're the director of press and communications. You're the yeah. director and the organizer of the conference. You look as though you're three quarters dead, and actually you're okay. Yeah. So you're ideal for television. <laughs> so they took me up on this, this stretcher. Amazing. And they uh, said, okay, we'll call the press conference. Well, at that point, a camera, a BBC camera, put a sun gun on. Now, you'll be familiar with a sun gun, yeah. but it's just for anybody who isn't. It's a very bright flashlight on the top of a, a movie camera, yeah. a video camera, that shines straight at the thing when you've got no other light and you need yeah. it. It's a battery-powered thing. And they put this sun gun on me, so my eyes were squinting. Yeah. They'd washed a little tiny bit of the rubble away, but I couldn't see anything except this sun gun. Yeah. So they asked me all these questions. And what did I think of the terrorists? And I said, oh, if we'd been a little more active in our Christian faith, there wouldn't be so many of them. <laughs> and and um, what I didn't know was that there are 27 other international camera crews all standing around and behind that yeah. BBC cameraman because they were all holding their breath. Yeah. They'd all been told, you can film, but, but you mustn't say anything, you know, because I don't know why, but that's what they've been told. So anyway, later on in, um, in the day, when I'd washed up a little bit and got back in to run my conference, uh, Mrs. Thatcher, I went in to see her in the cabinet in the, in the room where before we went on to do the speech, you see, that afternoon about two o'clock. And she said, um, there's a, uh, I've had a telegram for you, Harvey. And I thought, now why would the Prime Minister tell me that she's had a telegram for me with all the cabinet here? Yeah. And then she said, shall I read it to you? So what else could I say, you know? Now, 
both she and the cabinet knew Marlies, my wife, well. Yeah. You see? And um, so anyway, she said, I read this. It says, Dear Harvey, I saw you here in California being rescued from the Brighton bomb this morning. <laughs> she said, Do you realize we've known each other 25 years and I've never seen you naked before? <laughs> Love, Diane. <laughs> and this was a girl I'd been at Bible college with 25 years oh, before and who was in California. Wow. And Mrs. Thatcher read this out, so that gave all the cabinet oh, a bit of a laugh on a rather nice. miserable day for them all, But um, since, especially since they all knew Marley's. Now, uh, now, how many people were killed and injured in the bombing? Five people were killed and uh, 27, if you count me, uh, were injured. And some of them seriously. I was not seriously injured. I looked appalling. But uh, the Tebbits really suffered. Norman and Margaret Tebbit, uh, he was crushed. She is still a paraplegic. Mm. And he has looked after her wonderfully for 27 years. I mean, he's nursed her and loved her. And uh, they're a marvelous couple. They really are. Huge courage. John Wakeham, whose wife was killed, was also very seriously injured. His legs and thighs were shattered. Um, he's recovered, although he still has some difficulty walking. Yeah. But then five people were killed. All of them were friends of ours. Uh, and, and the bomber, as you know, is now a, a close friend of ours. Now, this is the incredible part of the story, which uh, it still blows my mind that Harvey was able to forgive the IRA bomber that uh, did this terrible, terrible thing. And uh, he even came to your home. But let, let's... Let's backtrack. Who was the bomber, and how was it that he was freed? Well, the bomber was a man named Patrick McGee, and uh, Pat was a what he calls himself um, an agnostic, lapsed Catholic, <laughs> uh, and he was just a young uh, nationalist, Republican Ar- uh, Irishman, and um, he was sort of knew what we were doing to the Catholics, which was appalling. I mean, that's no excuse for violence, but yeah. we treated the Catholics in Northern Ireland, the nationalists who'd like to, people who'd like to see all of Ireland as one, we treated them appallingly for 200 years. I mean, they couldn't rise up in the police, they couldn't rise up in the army, it was appallingly treated. And I said, that doesn't excuse any violence. But he had seen all this and, and suffered from it. Then on Bloody Sunday in 1972, when the British Army, through incompetence, not through malice, uh, shot and killed 14 unarmed Irish demonstrators, Uh, four of his friends were among them. And he said, enough is enough. I I will join the Irish Republican Army, and I will go to war with the British government. And um, he's a doctor of philosophy, educated man, and he made this decision. Mm. And uh, he was commissioned to um, with two other people who have never been discovered, nor have I asked him about them to blow up the British government in in the Grand Hotel Brighton. And um, he was caught about a year later in 1985, and a fraction, what had happened was he'd planted the bomb with a three-week video timer on it. So that's why it went off at 5 to 3 in the morning. And a tiny smidgen of his uh, fingerprint was on a bit of the timer that was found weeks later sifting through the rubble through sort of very fine sieves and they found a tiny bit of a timer and they magnified it under a and they found a tiny bit of his fingerprint on it. And uh, so he was caught and he was sentenced to eight life sentences um, for five murders and three attempted murders. Was was this at the Old Bailey in London? I can't remember where it was, where the trial was, but it was in a a British court. And uh, he was sentenced to eight life sentences and went to jail in 1985. Well, the years went by and in 1998... I was speaking in St. Matthew's Church, Louisville. Um, we're in Nashville here at the moment and yeah. at NRB, and, and this is about three hours north of Nashville. And I was speaking on forgiveness at a reconciliation conference. And um, as I was speaking on Matthew chapter 6, I realized 
that I had been preaching about forgiveness for all those 14 years and before, after, before and after that, but I'd never actually practiced it. So I mm. stopped in the I really felt convicted by God in the middle of my message. Yeah. Um, and so I, I stopped. I said, I'm realizing what I'm saying. I'm, I'm not being genuine here. I've never written. So I will write to Patrick McGee and I will forgive him. Mm. And I went back home and I told Marlies and we both prayed about it and uh, she agreed. So I wrote to Pat McGee in 1998, 14 years after the bomb. Yeah, you had his prison address, wasn't it? He was in the Mays prison, yes, yeah. the, the, the infamous H-blocks in, in, oh, in, in Ireland. And uh, so I wrote to him in the prison, and I said, I'm writing as a Christian to say I forgive you for what you did, but I can only speak on my own behalf. I have no right to speak on behalf of anybody else. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a very nice letter back from prison. Thank you for your graciousness. Um, and because of your faith, and we see things differently, etc., etc. Very gracious and courteous letter. But two years later, in 2000, all the Irish prisoners were released. He'd served uh, 15 years of his life sentences. And um, so I contacted a friend in Dublin called Anne uh, Gallagher and said, can you find Pat McGee for me? And she said, yeah, I know how to reach him. Her brother, she was one of the, um, her brothers were on hunger strike, so she was involved, but not personally. And she found Pat McGee, and we arranged to, I flew over to Dublin to meet him in her house, and we sat there for five hours. Tell me, what was, how were you feeling? Because I could imagine you're wondering, what am I going to say to him? And so when you went in, was your heart pounding, or what? Well, (laughs) sorry to be disappointing and non-dramatic, but actually, no. Once once I had made up my mind that the right thing I had to do was to forgive him, Mm -hmm. then it became academic. It was meeting a new human being. Um, because that decision had been made. I had forgiven him. Therefore, it was over. I wasn't forgetting anything, but it was, yeah. com- it was over as far as emotionally that decision had been made. I had forgiven him. That's what the Bible said. And I'd finally, after 14 years, yeah. got around to doing it. And he told me later he walked around the block of houses four times looking for my security people before he came in. He thought I'd have government security people to, to watch him. Yeah. And I said, no, I just flew to the airport, took a taxi to the address, and was sitting in the living room waiting for you. Anyway, we talked. And he said, it's, the job I was doing was rather like being the captain of an, uh, a submarine during wartime. You put your periscope up and you see an aircraft carrier. You say, my job is to sink that aircraft carrier. You don't say, oh, good, I can kill somebody. He said, it's a job we had to do in, in the army. And he said, you lose a little of your soul every time someone's hurt or killed through what you do. And we talked for hours and hours and hours. And um, he's actually a delightful guy. He was wrong, I believe, in what he, what he did. He now, he's been asked many times, would you do the same thing? And he, the first two, we've done, we've done four reconciliation meetings together and, and uh, discussion on restorative justice together. And for the first two, he would say when he was asked that question, would you do it again? In the same circumstances when we tried everything else at the same time, yes, I probably would feel the same way. The last two, he has said, do you know, I've realized I cannot put myself back into those circumstances because I now know all the suffering that I caused. Hmm. And, and, um, and you can't put yourself back in that situation again, now knowing the aftermath of all the suffering and pain that you've caused. So his attitude has changed. Wow. And he hasn't come to Christ yet, but we keep praying for him, and we see him and talk to him as regularly as we can. Now, what's so wonderful, didn't he actually then come to your home and talk to your wife and uh, your daughter, yeah. I think? Yeah, he did. Um, after 2000, yeah. when he was released, we tracked him down. I went to see him. 2001, he came across. We live in North London, and he's li- he was then living in Belfast. And... Um, 
So he had to come over to do some media interviews, and I was doing some as well. So I went to meet him at the airport, Stansted, early in the morning on a Saturday. And, of course, no motels open at that time. So um, I said to him, come on home, we'll go home and have some food. Leah, our eldest daughter, who had been born five days after the bomb, was, was with me. Huh. Met him at the airport, and uh, we went home. Marlies was at home. Lani, our youngest daughter, who was born two years after the bomb, was there. And we sat down, and um, Marlies made some baked beans on toast. <laughs> and as we were eating these, Lani, who was born two years after the bomb, looked across at Pat and said, Pat, you do realize if you'd succeed in killing Daddy, I wouldn't be here. Whew, wow. And he was in tears. Yeah. He said, wow. I can't believe I'm sitting here as a friend when I've tried to kill your, your daddy, your husband, um, all because of your faith. It was quite an interesting uh, wow. session. Did he apologize to them? Or, I mean, how did it all come together? Yes, he has... He's apologized personally to all of us many, many times yeah. um, in the sense that he's terribly sorry that he caused hurt and damage. He believed at that time that it was necessary to take this action of war. We disagree. Mm. I believe that was wrong. Um, I understand, however, how he feels. Um, I cannot see any justification, uh, any more justification or less justification in what he did than in what we have done in slaughtering 100,000 civilians in Afghanistan and another 100,000 in Iraq who don't even know where England or America is, let alone what they do. Yeah. Um, and yet we have slaughtered all these people in the name of war and in the name of freedom. I think that's wrong too. Yeah. But I think Pat was wrong, but I understand his point of view, that he sure. felt that finally he had to go to war. We're speaking with Harvey Thomas, who has the most amazing story of surviving the Brighton bombing and then being reconciled with the actual bomber. I just find that absolutely wonderful that we as Christians often hold on to our little grudges, and yet Harvey was able to forgive this man that tried to kill him. Uh, have you seen the movie yet, uh, Harvey? Yes, I have. Let me add, before I come to the movie, yeah. I take no pride in forgiving Pat as yeah. a Christian because it took me 14 years before I listened to what the Word of God said about forgiveness. Oh, okay. Had I done it a lot earlier, then I might have been able to say I did the Christian thing. Yeah. As it is, I left it 14 years before I really listened to the voice of God and forgave. Switching to the movie, yes, I have seen the movie. I was shown a preview of it um, by Premier Radio in London, who had arranged a preview. And um, it's very interesting. There are times when I feel... That's mother. We used to call Mrs. Thatcher mother because, <laughs> well, when you're traveling, we were traveling all over the country, all over yeah. the world, and you can't talk about Mrs. Thatcher and you can't talk in public you and can't you can't talk about the prime minister, or not in public, no. because everyone would know you're talking about it, the yeah. ostentation and the security risk. So we just called her mother. Um, but there were times when I thought, I'm right behind her walking down the corridor, she's wow. absolutely to a T. There were other times when I thought, that's not Margaret. Yeah. Um, and for example, there was a time where she got frustrated and angry at Sir Geoffrey Howe, yeah. who was the, then the Foreign Secretary. Or was he Chancellor? I can't remember. Um, and he'd forgotten some paper to bring into Cabinet. And she turned to him, oh, for goodness sake, Geoffrey, can't you even get your Cabinet papers in order? Oh. Now, yeah. it was wrong to say that. It was hurtful to him. Yeah. But she wasn't being malicious to him. She was just, oh, dear, for goodness sake, let's get on with the next one. Sure. And although it was a mistake, it was not a malicious mistake. Yeah. And... Uh, a little, a few days later, he made his resignation speech, and I happened to be with 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 uh, a mother that night, and she said, um, "Oh, 
I do wish Jeffrey could have gone quietly after so many years together because she considered and considers as much as she can these days that friends are there to be taken advantage of and that they should take advantage of you. That's what (laughs) friends are for. What's the point of having friends if you can't take advantage of them and they can't take advantage of you? And it was a mistake to talk to Jeffrey that way, but it was not malicious, whereas I think in the film it came out as malicious. The other thing was in the film they did not show any of the not so enough of the major achievements, the privatization, the uh, property-owning democracy, i.e. selling off two million council homes and so on. Um, They didn't show enough of her major achievements, but they showed a lot of the angry, rioting uh, miners and the miners' strike and so on. Um, But they showed her as being ambitious, and she was never ambitious. She had no desire at all for herself. She merely felt, in the same way that Billy Graham has felt all his life, I must preach the gospel, she felt, I must get these things done. England needs to get these things done to put it right. And it happens that the best way of doing that was to become prime minister. (laughs) Uh, But she had no personal ambition at all. Uh, But she was presented in the film as being ambitious. So I think that... um, that was something, but it's it's a, a film well worth watching. It's very thought provoking, yeah. and I, I, I hope she. I, d- I don't think she's seen it. I'm pretty sure she hasn't. Although some people say she has, I haven't talked to her in the last few months. But her mind is not in focus. She does yeah. have Alzheimer's, yeah. and um, the film starts and finishes with the Alzheimer's. And I think yeah. it. I wish it had not been shown until after she had died. Yes, yeah. uh, physically, she's not too bad at all now, but uh, mentally. Yeah. She, she's got this very serious disease. Now, we're coming right to the end, Harvey. We just have uh, about 30 seconds or so. Someone's listening to this, and they're holding on to anger. They're holding on to bitterness. But what would you say, very briefly, someone listening to this who is still angry about something? I would say that it took me 14 years to realize that forgiveness is a biblical requirement and it's a Jesus requirement. And if you can realize that a little bit earlier, it will ease your mind and give you peace of heart far, far more than keeping the anger. The anger just makes you bitter and makes you cross. Forgiveness is desperately needed in today's world, and it's all too often not there. But that's what the Bible teaches. And Jesus said, forgive others as, as you are forgiven. Well, Harvey Thomas, thank you so much for being on the program. It's a delight, and I'll let you into a secret. We worked together many years ago in London in the Billy Graham office, and I am so uh, delighted to tell your story today on Front Page Radio. Harvey, thank you. Thank you, Dan. I remember it well. (laughs) You have been listening to Front Page Radio with international journalist Dan Wooding. If you would like a free subscription to the Assist News Service, log on to www.assistnews.net. And if you would like to write to Dan, send an email to assistnews at aol.com. Tune in again for another edition of Front Page Radio on this same station.